Hey everybody, Chris and Tim back with you for another thrilling episode of Leading by the Book. We're going to start this week with a little bit of a different topic than usual. Our very own Tim Barrett has purchased an RV. And by RV, I'm thinking of Christmas Vacation when Cousin Eddie says, that there is an RV. That there is an RV. That's right. I have. I bought a, I bought a, a travel trailer, hoping to do a little bit of a road trip. My wife, uh, not to make everything that I talk about about investing, but, but uh, I tell my wife, uh, anytime I buy camping equipment, this RV, all that stuff, I say it's an investment in the recession. Because if you think about it, like camping is actually a very inexpensive vacation, right? So I call stuff like that actually domestic investment. That's what I call it. You could also call it downside protection. You know, if everything else goes to hell in a handbasket, I got my bug out vehicle. We're going to go out in the middle of the desert and nobody can touch us. I can go live in a van down by the river. That has been your entire goal since I've known you. Oh, it's all just various forms of... Uh, ability to live in a van down on the river. That's right. Are you are you a runner? And I don't mean like the the physical fitness aspect of running, but like, are you a runner? Like you just want to run away sometimes. Um, my my wife uh, does say that I'm frequently planning my escape by land and sea. Those are her words. So when it's fight or flight, your flight. Um, I'm very much a so I am a nine. On the Enneagram, which is the the peacemaker, and and nines are actually very known to have a deep connection to nature. Um, I enjoy the quiet and solitude of being out, you know, in the forest or being out on a sailboat or, you know, away from sort of the pressures and chaos of, you know, this rat race world that we live in. What's well, sort of the problem with the camping thing now is I think everybody else is in the same boat you are. And so you're telling me, you know, because I am, I'm not a very big camper, but I, I would like to do it a lot more. And, you know, especially given the state that we live in, it's, it's an incredible state to camp in. But, you know, where, where you go camp, you said it's more full than it's ever been just because oh, everybody's out there. Yeah, it's, it's totally crazy. Um, just about everywhere I've gone, uh, there, if it's, if it's, if it's reasonable, easy, reasonably easy to get there with a stock SUV, uh, it's packed, completely packed. I don't think you have a stock SUV though. We got to walk through this. Your bug out vehicle, in addition to the trailer that you have created is fairly remarkable. Yes. So yes, I, uh, I, I also bought a very old uh uh lexus lx470 it's a it's a basically the land cruiser version uh of a uh the lexus version of a land cruiser i should say and um uh yeah i have that built to sort of make it over a few what they call gatekeepers in order to not because i love rock crawling or four-wheel driving or anything like that actually i actually really i don't love rough roads it's just exhausting to drive on um but it's for that purpose to be able to kind of get out a little bit um in the middle of nowhere get some space and you know grill steak have a campfire hang out with the family there's something absolutely magical about a campfire you know there's there it's very much the simple things in life that i think are valuable um, I also, I, I know that, that one of my core values, which this will not surprise you, uh, uh, working together every day, every day, but one of my core values that I, that I deeply, deeply, deeply value and frankly sort of need uh, is freedom. And so I, th- I think a lot about, um, you know, I've never been a very good employee, uh, but I, but I, if I can toot my own horn, I think I, I am a pretty good uh, manager, executive, entrepreneur because I'm constantly trying to work my way out of a job so that I can get freedom. And um, 
you know, we were just recording a little show for our team and talking about training. And that just resonated so much for me with me because, um, you know, if you can, if you can replicate the valuable things that you do in somebody else, not only is it fulfilling because you got to mentor them and, and, and raise them up in their skill set, um, but for a guy like me that values freedom, it, you get that freedom. You know, I think training is an interesting concept, and especially right now in the economic environment that we're in. Part of the problem that, that we have when we see organizations get bloated, I actually think relates back to training or lack thereof. The problem, and also the strength of training and training programs, are that they make us explore exactly what it is we want, exactly what a role should do, exactly what needs to be done. And like a lot of things, we, don't, we very much struggle to get down to detailed enough thoughts in our heads we go and we hire somebody hoping that, oh, they're, ho- hopefully they can just come solve this problem for us. We know we have a problem. We don't necessarily or haven't necessarily taken the time to solve it or to figure out how it should be solved. So we hire somebody to do it. And then they maybe do a good job at it, but not a great job. So we hire somebody else and then we hire somebody else. It gets us back to this idea that we have been probably very overstaffed as a country at the corporate level here. And I, I think that's going to be a scary thing moving forward. I'm sure I've made the same point the last three or four weeks here, but so much of what we're seeing now is going to cause companies to reevaluate how they're doing things, how they're working. Do they need big office spaces? Do they need lots of office spaces? And the same thing goes with people. Do they need all of these people? Or if we actually take the time to create training and detailed roadmaps for our, for our people, do we actually need to hire these people back or can we be just as good or maybe, maybe even better without doing it? Right. What is that? Uh, uh, desperation is the mother of uh, innovation, or I thought it was. I like thought that. it was necessity. Necessity is the mother of innovation. Yes. And when you get into times like this, when you're, you know, when your business is uh, struggling because of some global pandemic, you know, uh, vampire uh, apocalypse. Uh, alien invasion, whatever it is that causes impact to your business, that causes you to look at the resources that you have and say, I have to do whatever I'm doing more efficiently or or risk being out of business. It causes us to go back and say, how are we doing this thing? And can we do this thing a bit better? And you become more efficient, right? And and over time, you know, productivity uh, in, uh, in, um, uh, a country or a business is what really drives value. And so these, these, these times when, when you're pressed, when you don't have excess cash flows uh, uh, to make the investments that you think you need to make to improve the value of the business, you're forced to do things more efficiently, to do more with less. Uh, it it makes, makes businesses better, I think. I also think that that one of the things we, the mistakes we make in hiring is a mistake that most of us make in life in general. If you don't know what you want, there isn't anyone in the world that can tell you how to get it. Yeah. And so if you don't know, if you're trying to hire, if you're going to hire somebody and you're not clear about what you want, then, then they're not going to be clear about what their deliverable is. And, you know, I, I really like, um, uh, the concept of talk rating. Uh, they talk about it in the book called Who. Uh, top grading is uh, basically a concept of starting with the end in mind. You're, you're writing the person's one-year review uh, and, and thinking through what are the measures by which success is going to be defined and how am I going to measure this person's success? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're backing into what does that mean the skill set this person needs to have? And then you're backing into the job description. Uh, rather than working the other way where we write a job description because we think we need somebody to do something. Um, when, um, uh, you know, I, I think, I think that's a mistake that uh, gets made in, in, in hiring, frankly, and in life. It's just not knowing what you want. Well, we just start filling holes or we start doing things because we think we're supposed to, you know, we think we're supposed to have this person on our team or this role on our team, or we think we're supposed to buy this thing or, you know, whatever it is, I think we were talking about it yesterday, but 
the primary function of a CEO, and, and by the way, don't attribute this to me because I completely lifted it from one of my favorite people, Charlie Munger, but the, the primary function is capital allocation. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this more in the context of something that Ben Horowitz wrote about, which was the difference between peacetime CEOs, as he calls them, and wartime CEOs. And right now, you're seeing a lot of CEOs that were peacetime CEOs for the last 10 years. And what I mean by peacetime is there wasn't a lot going on from a, from a broad economic perspective that, that really would limit their business. Um, you know, most businesses, um, you know, at least let's say publicly traded businesses, weren't really in survival fights. I mean, certainly there are businesses in survival fights, even in, in bull markets, you know, you have startups and things like that. But most folks have been peacetime CEOs for for a long time. E- even a guy that I love, Bob Iger at Disney, has been a relative peacetime CEO. Suddenly, you're seeing a lot of CEOs, well, just about all CEOs, um, thrust into this idea of being a wartime CEO, meaning you are now fighting for survival of your company not just against the marketplace, not just in the eyes of your your customers, not just against your competitors, you know, <laughs> but literally in the sense that you've got governments trying to shut you down. We are we are in a black swan event where a lot of companies are trying to survive things that were never even remotely foreseen, and the skill sets that it takes to lead in those environments are dramatically different. And so the question, I and I'm actually curious what you think about this. The question is. Can you be both a peacetime CEO and a wartime CEO or not? Because I, I think people might differ in terms of how they would answer that. I think, I think that the peacetime CEO knows that the wartime is coming uh, and is preparing the company for stability. I, I actually, I, I wrote about this a little bit in my, in my, um, my blog that I like to pontificate on, um, uh, which actually, as I think I told you, I um, realized I bought, I bought the, um, secured the rights to uh, timsblog.com, which actually is not accurate. It's actually timsblogs.com. <laughs> but I decided that plural is actually just fine. So I'm just going to leave it. To be fair, no, there are multiple blog posts. So it is yeah, Tim's blogs. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to go with it. Uh, but I, but I'd written about, uh, uh, inefficient efficiencies. And I feel like we've re- as American, uh, uh, business owners and operators, and, uh, we've, we've looked and investors, frankly, it encompasses all of them. Uh, we've looked at, uh, our companies and we, we said, how do we do things more efficiently? And a lot of that has all been driven at reducing inventories and working capital uh reducing manufacturing costs by outsourcing uh to the lowest cost manufacturer and i think a lot of these things are actually being called into question right now Uh, does it make sense for companies to produce their goods uh in a foreign country uh a world away when that supply chain can actually be fractured uh, very easily as just as has just been proven like that calls into question the whole that whole most efficient producer thing uh, we we've 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 taken our inventory levels right and reduced them reduced them re- reduced them to this quote unquote just in time inventory and that that's left shelf despair in many cases right again because the products are actually manufactured a world away uh, both of those things have been decisions made by peacetime CEOs and, and business operators are our, our, our uh, working capital that we hold uh, inside of a company uh, gets reduced, reduced, reduced. And it is in fact a positive thing to have a negative working capital business. Uh, people brag about this. Uh, that, 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 that they can have a negative working capital position. Uh, that's actually an attractive thing about a car wash company. It, unless your business gets shut down in some way. And I've, it's really, it's got me thinking a lot about my wife's, uh, my wife's grandfather, 
uh, who uh, he he and and her grandmother uh, started a machine shop. You know, they were they were depression babies, and you built businesses differently uh, during that time. You built businesses to survive uh, a downturn. Even even our use of debt, right? So mm-hmm. all of these things are peacetime CEO decisions. We maximize the amount of debt to reduce the amount of equity that we need to to give away. Um, but all of these things leave us in a really compromised position. And so how efficient are those inefficiencies? There is really cause, cause a lot of these things into question. How are lenders going to underwrite us coming out of this? Are they going to require us to have working capital reserves? Probably should. Uh, you know, is it, is it a, is it a good thing to be the low cost producer if your supply chain is heavily dependent on, on foreign countries and foreign actors? Uh, and, and that can be disrupted. Uh, it, is it efficient to reduce your inventory levels to such a point to where you actually only have maybe a week worth of inventory? Uh, and in that sense, even the businesses, these peacetime CEOs, and I'm guilty too, uh, well, because nothing like this has really happened. But these peacetime CEOs make these decisions and they're rewarded for it. The stock price goes up. The valuation of the company goes yeah. up. And I think we're, we may be coming into a world where we are going to be rewarded for building a sustainable company again. By the way, activist investing plays a role in this too. We, we, we should point that That's out. Right. You know, that, that plays right. a really, really big role in some of these companies effectively shrinking their working capital so they can buy back stock. You build, you, you build up the share price or you grow the share price. Investors happy. CEO is probably happy as well. It's, there, there is a problem with that. But, you know, and, and to be fair to a lot of these CEOs now, this is unprecedented in the sense that a government is actually shutting us down. That, that, was, that right. was, was certainly nothing that any of us probably right. ever considered. But to your earlier point, we do need to learn from from history, just in the sense that the unforeseen can happen, and it's kind of like we're preparing, but we don't know, we don't know what we're preparing for. I actually think about this a lot when I don't want to get out of bed and work out in the morning. I'm thinking, all right, well, I'm I'm preparing for a fight here. I don't know what that fight's going to be. If I, I might, I want to get myself healthy because I might be fighting cancer down the road, or I might have any number of of health issues. But I'm preparing myself for a fight. I don't know what that fight's going to be, but that doesn't change the way I prepare. And I think as a business, we we get caught in this fallacy of, oh, well, and you know what we do personally too, to be fair. Well, things are going well. You know, the, the market's going well right now. So so why not? And, and I admit my wife and I had a conversation about a year and a half ago on on something we were going to invest. And we were debating if we should uh, put money over here or put money over there. And and we said, all right, well, you know, we've you know, over the last couple of years over, over in this account, you know, we've been doing 30, 35%. Why don't we just put it there? Well, just because it's done that in the past is in no way, in no way indicative of what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's the hot right. hand fallacy. We, you know, in, in, you know, a lot of people have talked about this over the years, but just because some guys made nine threes in a row, it has absolutely no bearing on whether or not he's going to make the next one. And so, right. you know, we, we get caught up in these, bare, we're, you know, we're only 12 years out of, uh, well, I guess maybe 11 years out of the financial crisis, but it's still so easy to forget the lessons that we learned, even though they're, I guess, slightly different lessons. We got to be preparing for something. That's why I, I do think, I think wartime CEOs can be peacetime CEOs. I don't think peacetime CEOs can be wartime CEOs. Because even in peacetime, that wartime CEO is building up for the unknown. He's preparing. And beca- the unknown is going to happen. We don't know what it's going to be, but something unknown will happen. And we're always preparing right. for that. Yeah, that's always the point. And, you know, it's funny. It just we as humans, we, 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 we like trends and we project out trends and we think they're going to continue forever. They never continue forever, right? It, yeah. The trend always changes. But it it's only when changes. it's in our favor that we say that, though. Like, yeah, if the market's up 30%, oh, it's going to keep going. Great. We, you know, but if it's down 30%, it's like, well, th- th- this isn't going to continue forever. Well, we're, we're so dumb. We tell ourselves what we want to hear. Right. How, yeah. how, like, how, how are we at the point in the food chain that we are? Like, I, <laughs> you, th- you and I got in a big debate the other day. Well, not a debate, but a big discussion about apex predators, if I recall. 
and I just like human beings are so smart yet so stupid. Right. And it's embarrassing. It really is. But that is why I read a lot of a lot of books about war because you know, there's so much to be learned about these operators that operate in the in the most dire of circumstances or in the highest stakes uh, of environments and taking that and preparing your company in peacetime for that can only do good. Right. You know, what's interesting just through this discussion, I'm discovering something about you here. Oh boy. Your entire, your entire discussion there was about fight. And, and we just talked about my response of flight and, you know, I'm a recovering debt underwriter. And so I'm, I'm typically <laughs> analytical, analytical to begin with. And, um, you know, my son does this too in sports. He loves playing sports, uh, very athletic kid. Uh, but we always say he lacks the, the killer instinct because he's like me. He's analytical. First step is step back, assess. Where's the risk? How do I insulate against that risk? And so I think that's why I like the the withdrawal, the ability to think, to, to get away, to think, to clear everything and 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 to look and see, okay, what 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 does the playing field look like? And and then and then to act. See, I and, think that's uh, the first step, whether you fight or flight. Well, I just was about to say I appreciate having you on the team because uh, you're ready for battle at any given time. The fight and the flight need each other. I, th- I think they do because it's neither right nor wrong. And I think in the right circumstance, each of them has merits. You know, if if I'm on a bus late at night and six guys get on, you know, ready to beat me up, I think flight is going to do a lot better for me than flight. And that, you know, no matter what Mark Wahlberg or Jason Statham manages to do in a movie, you're not taking down six guys that are coming to punch your lights out. It ain't going to happen. Flight is very, very, very good. But there are also plenty of circumstances that are uncomfortable that we want to run away from. You know, here's, here's one. Say you're firing an employee. Uncomfortable. A lot of people run away from it. They hope the problem solves itself. Not going to. That's when we need to fight through. Right. It's just a tool. They're, and they're both yeah. tools. I think we, we become comfortable with tools. Someone might like a hammer. Someone might like a screwdriver. But that doesn't mean we should favor one over the other. We should find the right tool for the job. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. You know, I do think getting back to the CEO topic though, I don't think there are many good CEOs. And um part of the reason that I think that is one, um, we have too many peacetime CEOs, to be honest. You know, and two, it's very hard to get the right level of training, not only to be a CEO, but to be a wartime CEO. Sure. It, you know, it maybe one of the reasons, you know, and I would consider myself a better probably wartime leader than peacetime leader. I'm not a good visionary guy and stuff like that. And that's what a lot of peacetime CEOs do well. They, they think about the future and, you know, they're, they're able to cast a vision and all that. Um, but I think part, probably part of it is because my formative years were spent uh, in a very distressed company uh, at, at Sears. And I think because of that, you know, I, I gravitate towards what I'm comfortable with. But you know that also fortuitously has prepared me even for for things now and well well the circumstances you know uh, our car wash company was in were not nearly as as dire as things i saw at sears you know the market was certainly in a dire situation and and that very very much prepared me well to to handle that that kind of stress um, in fact i loved it i i think i said this this yesterday morning um in in our our men's group meeting but the happiest i've been since i've been with with the car wash company was the last couple months when we've been dealing with, with some of these existential issues. That's, that was just, I felt alive. Um, but I, I don't think many of the CEOs right now, at least in the public markets are prepared for something like this. They've been the benefit of, or they've had the benefit of 12 years of pretty calm seas. And, you know, it's, it's really tough. And, and part of the reason it's tough to become a wartime CEO is because, you know, say you take over a, a a distressed company, the chances of survival are very, very slim typically. And so 
that company goes down, you've probably taken an unfair um, bit of artillery to your resume in that regard, and you're probably not going to be looked on very favorably for these other CEO jobs as a result of it, even though it you know might not have had anything to do with you. So getting the experience that you need to lead in situations like this is really, really hard to come by. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be gained on the job, really. I mean, you can't. I suppose you can study case studies, but studying case studies doesn't ever actually give you that gut check that really going through difficult times does. Yeah, yeah. Go watch watch 100 hours of UFC and then go get in the ring and tell me if that prepared you for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no, that's actually, that's funny. That's actually a really good example. That's actually a really good example. Uh, you know, there's, and, 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 you know, there's, there's been uh, ex- experience in my life, as I mentioned, I'm a recovering debt underwriter where, where I watched a, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of folks go through uh, difficult times uh, with their banks, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually very experienced uh, in seeing what that's like, but going through a time like this, you know, especially when this first started, we didn't know if we were going to be able to stay open or not. Right. And mm-hmm. so if you, if you have no revenue, you very quickly look at, okay, what's my cash burn? When do I run out? And, and you, you get that gut check of, am I going to survive this or not? And, and during, during that time, even, even all the experience that I had watching others do it, go through it, navigate it well. I saw a lot of people navigate it poorly. Um, this is going back to, to 08. I worked for a bank. I started a week before Lehman Brothers failed. <laughs> and yeah. Well, time for that one well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was there for about five years. It was a very interesting time. But even seeing that... Uh, didn't prepare me for actually experiencing that during during that short period when we, when we were I mean we were, we weren't sure you have no revenue you're looking at oh wow uh, I, I have no revenue I still have bills expenses operating costs payroll benefits to pay you very much look at that cash burn and it's like looking over a cliff yeah it's a gut check it is. But you know, yeah, until you experience sure. the emotions with that, it, okay, this this stuff also to your to your that's exactly what is it? What it is? It's the emotions. Yeah, until you ex, you know, it's one thing to read it on paper, but until you feel that surge of adrenaline or that anxiety in the pit of your stomach, or just even that crippling and heavy despair that that weighs on you, especially as a CEO, and you've got employees and families and you know all that stuff that that you look to. You can't be prepared for that. And I'm curious to see if there's a way to study the, the companies that do well in this. Obviously, there, there's going to be some market tailwinds if you're a you know, stay-at-home product or things like that. But what is the prior experience like for a lot of these CEOs? You know, I, I, t- I talked about Bob Iger. I love Bob Iger. I think Bob Iger is, you know, I always say Bob Iger is the best CEO in the world. But I'm not sure if Bob has has ever been tried like he's going to be. And I guess, I don't know if he's officially the CEO again at Disney. I know he kind of left and then he's like, oh, can't leave right now. But I'm not sure that there's ever been a crisis like this at the Disney company. And um, I think if anybody can handle something like that for the first time, it's Bob. But I'm curious what that's going to be like. You know, you get a guy, he's the most polished CEO in the world and he's effectively navigating something like this for the first time. This you know, those are things that it's hard to price into the market, and I, I don't know. I don't know how you do, but I also, just like last week, I don't understand how the market is priced where it's at right now. I, there's a hell of a lot of optimism, and you know, the guy that I love, you sent out uh, the article interviewing him, Sam Zell, th- this week, and he certainly doesn't see a lot of optimism. And I think I definitely understand where he's coming from right now. But he had some some great points in there. Um. Talking one about how, you know, there's just not a lot to buy right now. There's not a lot of things that are valuable. And it's it's so hard to think that with the jobless claims that we have in this country 
and the way businesses have been impacted by this that that there's nothing to buy there there's nothing that's that's cheap and you know one of the points he made you you've actually made this point a lot the last few weeks is that these sellers you know because it hasn't been that long since since you know the peak of this thing you know let's say february they still remember what things were worth and so they're still holding on to that valuation and there's no way that could be reality anymore right yeah i think i think um much of the um much of the current valuation it, 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 you have to get kicked in the shins a couple times in order to to really uh understand the value it's just it's as a if, if you're if you're a potential seller of an asset i think they i think they got to get kicked in the shins before they get realistic realistic about what, what their assets are worth same thing with the holders of some of these some of these assets in the stock market right so we're we're sort of in this like denial phase where we're hoping that what the impact is but the reality is is you can't you can't run um, a, a performa on most businesses or assets right now. It'd be it'd be speculation on on what it is because you don't know what these the impact is going to be. Why why do you uh, think that that's held over like it is? Is it just because with because uh, of the speed with which this happened, so it's just recent, or is it because we were at such highs coming into this? We taste you know it's like we tasted first class and now we can't go back to flying coach. What what is the reason that people are so hesitant to come down from from these valuations? I mean, I think it has to do with um, denial of reality. Um, you know, you you look at you look at you know, I own assets too, and I'm not selling any of them, right? I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to hold them because I don't I don't know what my impact is going to be, and I don't really care to sell to sell either. Right. So it's, 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 it's almost like the market is locked up. Right. Because, because both buyers and sellers don't know what their assets are worth. And so how do you even, how do you even value something? How do you value something right now? Well, the other thing um, that, that he pointed I, out, I don't think, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Um, I don't think that, um, I don't think, I, I know that, it's almost like all bad news is baked in. We shut down the world. Everybody knows we shut down the world. Nobody knows what that full impact is yet. And that hasn't been baked in. We know it's going to be bad. We don't know how bad. And so I think we have to know. I think we've fallen far enough to say we know things are bad. We don't know how bad. And so if I own assets, well, I don't really want to sell them because what if what if things come back really quickly? And if I'm buying assets, I'm thinking, well, I don't I don't really want to pay top dollar because what if this gets worse? And so we're almost in this weird like limbo phase, paralysis phase. One of the things Zell said that that made a lot of sense, and it, it's just, it's Everything you just described is so much more complicated because of the government intervention. And I'm not saying that, right. that was that was right or wrong, but it makes valuing things just a complete shot in the dark. And you know, S- Sam points out that, and I'll just read what he said here. I've got the quote. He said, you know, bankruptcies are what you need to clear markets and what you need to end recessions and dips. The fact that there's a lot more distressed players today will help clear the market. But it also means that there aren't anywhere near as many opportunities as there were in the past. We're probably not going to see the bankruptcies that that we rightfully should, and you know because of that, it's it's always interesting when a shirtless person just walks in the back of your room when we're on video chat. <laughs> Fortunately, it was my son and not my wife. Yeah, <laughs> we need a sign on the door or something just to let people know. <laughs> but he he does make the point that, and I I think it's spot on that you know. There are certain ways that markets function, and any time you get outside interference, and whether or not that's justified is a totally different conversation. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it just it makes valuing things 
so much harder to do. And that that's why you're seeing guys like Zell, guys like Buffett just sitting on their hands right now. These are times when these are investors that would typically be buying up everything in sight and nobody knows what to do. And it's it, it, it's frankly sort of scary because you can see these mar- you know, markets up 400, 500 points today. And then, yeah, it goes down. But it's, it, how? You know, it's it, great that it's up, I guess. But based on what? You know, I, I don't I don't think we know. And you know, the, the government intervention just makes it so hard to figure out. Yeah, it's totally unprecedented. Um, I mean, I think I said this said this before. In the absence of fundamentals, technicals prevail, and you know the S and P is is you know r- sitting right against the bottom side of its two hundred day moving average. And I can't help but look at you know typical uh, bear markets uh, and say we just went through denial. Uh, of where we were bull trap and we're expecting a return to normal. And until fear and capitulation step sets in, I don't think we're going to see valuations of things that really make any sense. No, I I have no idea. And, you know, real estate wise, I think it's interesting. Um, Just just looking over this article that, that uh, interviewed Zell, he was talking about uh, his prediction for dramatic oversupply in, in the market. And, you know, I don't know if I've seen a lot of the building that he talks about in Phoenix, but you know, spending time in Vegas, you know, do you know, I, I have friends building homes in Vegas and they're running a year or two behind schedule because they simply can't find framers right now. And anytime you hear someone say that, that's a little, little, little nerve wracking. They're, they're building so many condos, so many apartments, you know, around Vegas. And I don't know if it's like this in other municipalities, but it, of course, there's going to be oversupply issues. What what do we think is going to happen? And this is in a market that was one of the hardest hit in the country with the financial crisis. Right. Yeah. And I think I think it just takes time for that stuff to play out. I I don't necessarily um, I don't I don't buy into the uh, you got to get in now or you're going to miss the greatest opportunity ever. I don't think it is um, the greatest I opportunity. Think that's that's a, a problem. Well, I just mean as a as a as a phase, right? So, so you, you hear about that frequently, not just, I don't just mean this situation here, but you know, you've got to get in. I remember in the, in the run up to, you know, the, the housing crisis, the, the financial crisis, uh, there was very much a prevailing thought that, Oh, if we don't buy a house now, we're not going to be able to afford it in the future. Mm-hmm. That's a very scary thought when you, when you think about, who is the philosopher that said something is uh, essentially something is moral uh, to the extent that you can expect everybody else to do the same. Um, and it's immoral if everybody else can't do the same. Anyway, I think, I think the reason I bring that up is because if you take that same thought of, I got to buy a house now or else I'm not going to be able to afford it. If that is the prevailing thought and everybody thinks that, then everybody is assuming that they're not going to be able to afford it in the future. They're all on the wrong side of the trade. I, that, that wisdom, I just... So what is the downside? Okay, if everybody else is doing something, but you don't do it... Well, okay. So th- th- there's not a lot of downside to that, but it's, I, I guess I go back to that human nature comment I made earlier. You know, we're just... We follow the herd and we can, we're so good at convincing ourselves or justifying things to ourselves because we want them to be true. And it's just not. And we get in really bad situations because of it. Like, right. Okay. So you don't buy a house. So you rent a house. Okay. But, you know, now at least I'm not overextended. So I'm prepared for the unknown. You know, funny, funny thing, it was just the people that probably stayed renting are probably the people living in the best homes right now. Yeah. It's just, just I don't know. You know, but as, as a retail investor, or excuse me, as a, as a real estate investor, you know, what, what are you seeing on the supply side right now? Is, is there too much supply? Um, you know, I, I'm more of a value-add investor. Um, there, there is, well, before all this happened, that's what I mean. There's sort of this dislocation right now. Before all this happened, there was a shortage of, of real cash flow, right? People are paying up for cash flow. Um, 
during this phase here, there's not many deals that are getting done right now. Yeah. I mean, financing's difficult. The underwriting terms are difficult. Buy, uh, sellers haven't 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 really, you know, gotten um, realistic about what new normal looks like. I mean, we're looking at 33 million unemployed people now since this thing started with the 3 million that they announced today. Yeah. 33 million people. This is an enormous portion of our working population. And to our earlier discussion, when, when companies look at, you know, because they're, it, it's, it's their ability to survive. When they look at that and they say, okay, maybe I can do these things more efficiently. Like what percentage of those come back? It took us 11 years to put, to, to create that many jobs this last time. Yeah, that, so that that's why the say, V-shaped recovery is such a fallacy. I think. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a big believer in the V-shaped recovery either. I I I think that the V-shaped recovery is is sort of falling, starting to fall out of vogue. I'm just surprised the market hasn't fallen, as that's fallen out of vogue. Um, as, but you mentioned it, like as a real estate investor, like what am I what am I looking for? I'm I'm looking for signs of life in the market, really. And I keep referring to it as the new market. How do we test this new market, this post-virus, to see are things going to return to normal uh, relatively quickly? And the single most most of the real estate I'm involved in is single tenant, multifamily, and so is is that going to return to normal uh, on the single tenant side? Are the cap rates going to be the same? Are the financing terms of the buyers going to be the same? What's their required return? Um, you know, what's that underwriting going to look like on the multifamily side? You know, are our rents going to continue to grow the way they were? Are occupancies uh, going to continue to um, absorb uh, some of this new supply, as you mentioned? Uh, uh, you know, all those things were working for us before this, but, you know, 33 million people unemployed. What does that mean? And then there's sort of this, this weird moral hazard, uh, perverse incentive for companies to lay off their employees because their employees make more money on unemployment. It's better for them. Yep. And the companies get to keep their cheap PPP loans. Uh, you know, these are the things we're going to argue about, I think later. Uh, it, there, there's, it's a, it's a strange world and it's hard to even know where things are at right now. Yeah. It's, we're just stuck in in purgatory effectively you know i'm i've got cnbc on here and i'm i'm just looking at the uh next couple months on on oil and i'm thinking well i i don't understand how how we're not back in the same situation we were with oil that we were a couple of weeks ago because we oh, haven't kidding. made we haven't made more more storage space for this nobody's on the road you yeah. you and i look at data for miles driven and it's it's non-existent I, so how, how, how is it going yeah. to be any better? Well, and how, how much of that there, there was, we were out of storage. Uh, of course I'm not an oil investor. Maybe, maybe, maybe somebody else knows it closer than I do, but just, just rationally thinking through it, we were out of storage, which is why the contracts last month expired worthless. The economy is yes. The economy is starting to up, open up, but we were out of storage and the tankers were still full and heading our way from from overseas where are we going to put all this stuff there's got to be something else going on under, under underneath the surface or there's just a lot of fools on the wrong side of that trade yeah well you're also seeing um mortgages are starting or mortgage applications are starting to to grow dramatically again oh are they that's good news i hadn't heard that yeah but where's the optimism coming from Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that's 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 what I'm just what I'm what I'm figuring out here. It's it's bizarre. Well, maybe you know it could be positive if it's mortgage applications to refinance, you know, at lower lower and lower rates. I suppose. That well, so, so I'm I'm seeing headlines on Zillow right now, and actually we we have a friend with Zillow that we need to ask about all this because Zillow has the highest cash balance in their company history year over year. Their traffic uh, to their to their web and mobile is up six percent. So more people are looking for homes. More mm. applications are happening for homes. The home listing sites are seeing great revenue. 
help me understand this. I mean, I know, I know, um, you know, I've been looking at buying a second home in a, uh, uh, in a specific location for quite a long time. And, and I have been wondering, you know, are prices starting to fall or foreclosures starting to pop up? Are there going to be opportunities for me to do that? And so, you know, I'm probably adding to their 6% increase in uh, traffic. Yeah. I don't, I don't think valuations have fallen though. Home-wise, I, th- I think it's the same as the market. Yeah. I mean, not much at least. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if they have, have it all. So, but you know, I remember just, just in 08, I mean, this, this feels, I think I said this before, but, uh, on a previous show, but this feels a lot like 07 when, you know, things are starting to not look good, you know, things are starting to slow down and the discussions at the time, at least amongst my peers were, Oh no, this is going to be short lived. It's going to come right back. We tell ourselves the things we want to be true. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I've, I think I'm scarred from that, actually, my experience going through 08. And so I always think about things in terms of, okay, I think this about the world, but if I'm wrong, how am I going to hedge against that? From a consumer behavior standpoint, I'm I'm curious. So I saw earlier today Live Nation, you know, who does a lot of the ticketing for concerts and sporting events, stuff like that, has said or released a little data point. And they said that 90% of people are keeping their tickets for rescheduled shows. I'm curious if civilization returns to to normal or if, or if it changes. You know, I'd, you know, I, I've said on here, you know, we have. Um, we have Wisconsin Badger football tickets, and I don't know what those games are going to be like. And and I hate to say it, but you know, I if they you know cut the stadium size in half or a third or whatever, make you sit further away or reduce the fans, I don't want to go to those games. The the fun of going to those games is not the game. I can watch the game on TV, but it's the environment you're in and things like that. It, and I think a lot of people probably feel that way. So I'm I'm curious. You know, one, if the government's going to allow us to get back to that, and then it's just going to be on the people to determine whether or not they're comfortable with it. But two, if if the people are even comfortable with it, and we just, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows right now. And frankly, I think a lot of people are desperate to get back. I think there's certainly a sliver of the population that's going to continue to be very fearful, and you know, they're probably never going to leave the house without a mask again. But I think a lot of us are just desperate to get things back to how they were, not just economically, but just in terms of the way we live. But is that even yeah. possible? Well, and I think those questions have to be answered across multiple venues. I, I think you're, you're probably right. You know, it was, it was really interesting. I, I like to uh, pretend like I'm friends with people like David Rosenberg on Twitter and respond to his, uh, his posts. <laughs> um, you know, it's just kind of fun. And, but he was talking about uh, 9-11 and the spending in uh, air transportation and it taking seven years for it to come back. Is that how long uh, it took? It took seven years. Holy uh, cows. Yeah, it took seven years for it to come back after after 9-11. And um, uh, it was, I want to say two years. No, no, no. Uh, it looks like a little bit longer. Uh, for it to come back after um, pretty close to that, actually, for it to come back after after 08. And I just think, I think it's a little bit different uh, in this situation because, you know, 9-11, you, you, you looked at that situation and that, that same thing could occur again, uh, just like this virus, right? The virus spread could occur again on, an, on potentially an airplane, maybe let's call it. Uh, so there's some risk there, but the difference in 9-11 was it could strike anybody and it was certain death for anybody that it did strike. So low probability of occurrence, but it could be anybody. I think the difference with this virus and specifically airlines is if it were to break out again, there's, there's, a lot of us that are just aren't really susceptible to any lasting 
damage from this thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think it might come back a little bit faster, but I think you're asking the right questions. I think these questions have to be asked sort of across industries, across businesses, across sectors in, in almost every case. Um, you know, like I think about our own, you know, car wash company that we run. Um, I'm concerned about the economic uh, impact that we may see, but from a virus perspective, there's, I mean, there's just so little interaction with people mm -hmm. uh, that, that it's, it's not the same as say restaurants, right? So our restaurants going to be able to come back. Those are low margin business and cut, half the tables out of a restaurant and can the business even survive? I don't know. Not to mention, just um, to, let's say you have to have servers glassed and, or glassed, masked and gloved. Do you want to go to a nice restaurant and have somebody wearing a mask bring your food? It just doesn't feel right. Yeah, that seems really creepy. It does. I... But I think there's going to be, it's those kind of things that we need to think through. And, and, and rather than just broadly, it's going to come back or it's not. There might be, like for a car wash company, there very may, very well may be a V-shaped recovery, maybe, uh, in that in that micro economy of car washing, right? Uh, for a restaurant, I don't think that's the case. For um, uh, for an airplane, maybe it comes back a little bit faster than a restaurant. I don't know, but I think I think those are the right questions. So speaking of social distancing, where is the first RV trip? You know, I don't know. We're 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 working on we're working on that plan still. Uh, definitely cooler weather because we live in Phoenix in the middle of the desert. It's hot in summer, so we're looking across maps and looking for green swaths of land that we can go explore. <laughs> and so probably somewhere either into Colorado or up into Utah, Idaho. You know, maybe even as far as Montana, something like that. Um, uh, I would normally love to go to California. Uh, as you know, that's where I'm from and, and got a lot of friends and family in there and would love to come visit them. There's just a lot of weird things that I'm hearing out of California. Um, uh, you know, finding people, having different tests as you cross the border. Wait, what? Um, yeah, yeah. I've been hearing this rumor about... Uh, they're having may have to might have to get tested to cross the border into California, and Cal, only California is crazy enough to even talk about something like that. But stuff like that just makes me nervous. Hey, speaking of crazy, so the state of New York had all these emergency healthcare workers from across the country come there to assist and to volunteer. Um, for the folks that didn't volunteer, did you see that Governor Cuomo is proposing income tax for the guest workers that were there? Uh, helping people treat COVID. What? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. It's New York. It's, it's. Well, yeah. I mean, um, don't you have to pay, don't you have to pay taxes for every day that you work in New York? Something like that. Well, yeah. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of friends that are you know, b baseball players and they have to pay taxes in every different state that they play in so you go to new york for a four game series you got to pay four games of or four days of taxes there and this is just stupid but, but <laughs> we're crazy so the, the taxation is one thing but going back to california and you know testing people at, at the border we're not, not to get you know By the way we may be spreading rumors i haven't even googled this to see if this is fake news or okay not. well here, here, here's something better. that's not fake um, that I'm starting to wonder a lot about. In Kansas City, they are requiring you to register uh, where and when you go to church. Well, okay, I understand you can stand behind the COVID thing and say that, but you know, as a country, where are we going to start drawing the line between the Constitution and the quote-unquote public safety on this? I, yeah, that's a difficult question. But I mean, the, These are the kinds of things that rip countries apart yeah the precedent that's been set here is is uh is um could have some interesting implications in the future for sure yeah. is, are we just going to get to the point where the government is shutting down businesses for this or that it's just like oh yeah yeah they shut us down like when 
when we start getting to that that level of things, uh, we're going to be in some seriously big trouble. This is why people call us doomsdayers, though, Chris. Come on. Can we talk about something more positive? I tried to bring it back to your RV. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. This was a little bit more positive. Hey, you know what's really positive? Bitcoin. Bitcoin's really positive. (laughs) Talk about Bitcoin. I know nothing about Bitcoin, nor will I ever know anything about Bitcoin. You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, There's... So... So Bitcoin, um, it's just a means of exchange, right? And they supposedly have, have perfected, perfected the um, a digital uh, hard money, which is which is a strange thing, right? Because it's pretty easy for me to copy a video or you know whatever it is, and and to create more of it. Well, theoretically, they can't create more of this. There's only going to be 21 million, but there's been a lot of interest from, you know, hedge fund folks and financial folks uh, into it lately. And, and this guy who operates under this Twitter pseudonym, uh, uh, Plan B is his uh, pseudonym, uh, created this stock to flow model, which, which measures the, the amount uh, it, it's used for like, valuing um commodities uh gold silver copper you know uh platinum things of that sort the concept behind it is the more there is above ground and compared to the production of it the hard harder it is to manipulate the price because there's broad broad ownership of it in theory and you know if the price starts to creep up too much well owners can can sell it if and you know producers if they doubled their capacity uh, of output they couldn't really move the the value uh much is sort of the concept behind it so the higher the stock there is uh the the and the lower the flow the higher the value uh there is and there's he's got this this power law model that he created uh that's that matches gold and silver and and uh he matches it to bitcoin and so we're we're about to find out uh, if if the model's accurate. It shows like a a ninety five percent, might even be as high as ninety seven percent accuracy uh, compared to its historic price. And um, in theory, it's supposed to shoot up. Uh, his the first model said to fifty five thousand, uh, but then you know it was analyzed by a whole bunch of other quants. Um, in the finance world, and it's supposed to shoot up to two hundred eighty-eight thousand because of the halving that's coming this month. So every every um, two hundred ten thousand coins that are mined, and and mining just means transactions uh, verified, right? So that's what that's what this does. It verifies this transaction made between you and I. Those miners are actually creating creating uh, verifying that transaction, and then creating that a part of the blockchain that gets sent out to all the other miners. And so it's decentralized to all these people and their reward for that, for that mining is, is Bitcoin. They get some Bitcoin. And so there's, there's Bitcoin awarded every 10 minutes um, um, for whoever solves these, um, um, solves these things. And there's a halving coming in May and, and, and at each of the halvings, the power power law function because of the stock to flow jumps 10x, and so uh, the cost of mining Bitcoin is about to go from an average of around fifty six hundred dollars to uh, it's going to double uh, to uh, a little over eleven thousand dollars, but then um, uh, and it'll continue to rise from there. Um, so anyway, it's this great experiment right now and what's interesting about it is it's sort of an asymmetric risk right if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna 10x your money uh and it tends to overshoot actually historically and then crash back down so it'll overshoot by usually a factor of another zero and then it'll collapse 80 percent. that's been its historic trend and so in theory if this guy's right it'll probably shoot up way over three hundred thousand dollars and then it'll collapse back down to somewhere around 
$50,000 or something like that. And, uh, you know, so everybody's speculating in this thing. It's, I was it's, about to say, a, are you speculating or investing right now? Oh, I'm, I'm 100% speculating, uh, but I, but it's, it's, it's a, it's definitely a speculation, but I've got a thesis behind it. I think with where the global economy is, as all of these countries struggle to um, keep up with even the U.S., right? They're having to print, the, even the, the Eurozone, uh, they weren't able to tighten uh, their monetary policy from 2008 really at all. Whereas, you know, we were able to, to, to do several increases to our interest rate. And it just shows the strength of the dollar. Um, if, if all these other countries have to inflate their way out of their problems, you may see a situation uh, like, you know, Venezuela, where people are, instead of keeping their money in, in, uh, um, well, the Venezuelan currency slips my mind at the moment. Uh, uh, but instead of keeping that currency, they immediately convert it to Bitcoin and it preserves their, their, uh, spending power, uh, better than even their own currency because their inflation rate is so high. So if that, if those things happen, you know, Bitcoin's a lot easier. Gold historically is a vote of no confidence in your, in your, um, your country and silver for that matter in your country's monetary regime. But I, but I think Bitcoin more modernly uh, is also a vote of no confidence in your country's currency uh, monetary regime. And, and uh, I think as those things happen, that it'll become used more. But 100% is speculation. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. All right. I think we've beat that up pretty good this week. Yeah, that was fun. It was. Good talk. It was. When, when do you take delivery of the RV? Uh, I don't know yet. So they've got a few things uh, that they have to do to it. It's just call me sometime next week, and then I have to have it shipped. Where's it Where's it being uh, built at? That's coming out of Indiana. Yeah. That's uh, where they're all manufactured. Uh, how many people sit sleep? Oh, like 10. That, it's that it's a trap. It's a bunkhouse travel trailer, and then of course they take every piece of furniture and it all turns into a bed, and they claim that you know it sleeps to gazillion people. Yeah, uh, actually, I think it's two, four. I think it's eight. We can actually sleep eight technically, but it'll easily it's get your entire family and two dogs in there. Yeah, well, I've, I mean, I have four kids, so um, we got this uh, bunkhouse model travel trailer with uh, they've got queen size bunk beds. Is it uh, so off road? Two kids. No, it's just a normal one. So you're going to keep the rooftop tent then as well? Yes. In fact, what I'm planning on doing is having the rooftop tent on my truck, pulling pulling the RV, and then we can kind of go find a place to park the RV, hang out for a little while, and then go on you know further overnight expeditions from there maybe. That's sort of what I plan on doing. So you've got a bug-out vehicle from your bug-out vehicle. Yes. Yes. It's all, I think I'm, I think I'm wired to explore. I just love that. And, and so there's, you can kind of explore with the RV, then you can explore further with the the bug out rig. And then maybe I need some backpacking. I don't know. And I'll just keep going, keep going even further. Well, and from there, you get some dirt bikes or something like that. There you go. Yeah. Let's just throw a dirt bike in it. That's not a bad stuff. I may join you in the rooftop tent category here very soon. I'm, I think they're very cool. I think for the price too, they're they're actually a really incredible value when you think of what you get for them. When you compare them to a camper, they're incredible value. When you compare them to a tent, they're incredibly expensive. Yeah, they are. But <laughs> you know, the problem with the rooftop tent though is you either need to get one of the, um, what one of the little trailers to go with it. Or you need to make sure that you have an off-road rig to put it on top of. So you're probably buying another vehicle or something else with it. you got to have something big enough. Yeah. But it's a fun exploration. I I like being off the ground. Um, uh, It is sort of large and cumbersome uh, a bit. 
but um, yeah, no, I've I've enjoyed it. It's been a fun it's been a fun adventure. Yeah, I'm envious. I think I need to invest. All right, where can the folks find you on the interwebs? Tim Barrett DM at Twitter. Tim'sBlogs.com. Don't forget that second S. Yeah, still working on that thing, so don't expect much, but uh, starting to pontificate my thoughts and then as I'm trying to understand this changing changing world so rapidly. This is the primary. And Timothy Barrett on Instagram. On Instagram, if you care to watch my uh, off-road adventures, I suppose. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. I am uh, Mr. Chris Book on Instagram, Chris Book on Twitter, and Chris Book on LinkedIn. Uh, love to hear from you guys, and we'll check in with you guys soon. Take care.